since yesterday we are talking too much, I propose to start working today, but nonetheless to take it a little bit simpler, a couple of movie analysis, and then moving a little bit towards ideological mechanisms, so it's a kind of passage towards serious stuff. Okay, to give you an elementary idea of how I see that ideology functions in cinema, especially in Hollywood, I want to take an example which I don't think I already used it, namely uh, what I want to draw your attention to is that I've already written about it is this most elementary mechanism of the basic Hollywood formula usually referred to as the production of the couple. That is to say how, to put it in simplistic terms, even if that the story is in order to understand properly the story, and we do it, even if we are not aware of it, uh, the story had to be read at two levels. At one level, it's the official story, usually about some big, it can be World War II, global catastrophe, uh, asteroid hitting the Earth, and so on. But if you look at it closely, and I think this is the Hollywood, what if I may use the Lacanian term, plus de jouir, surplus enjoyment, is that you can also always read the story as a story about either creating the, a couple, incestuous problem or whatever, so that then you can also interpret the big catastrophe as a kind of a metaphor or a clue or related to the love couple. And okay, maybe you know then, so I will just briefly resume then, this is my, I've already repeated it so many times, I'm embarrassed, hope all of you already don't know it, this is my reading of, and here I'm really sorry that I don't have the clips, but this is a stupid movie, uh, uh, Titanic, you saw the last one I hope with, and so on. Although I must say that, uh, did you see, I didn't, but I will write about it, definitely, this revolutionary road. I mean, and my association was because it's the same two actors, Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Winslet, no? And I think this is a rather interesting movie, it's not bad. Her decision to do the abortion, the suicidal decision at the end, this is as close as you can get to, in Lacanian terms, an act. Authentic ethical act. Okay, but let's go to Titanic. Officially it's the catastrophe, the, the ship hitting the iceberg and so on, but the first thing that should make you suspicious, if you remember Titanic, the movie, is when exactly does the, the ship Titanic hit the ice, the iceberg. Do you remember when? It's, it's precisely after the couple makes love. You know, they, down there, beneath the deck, in a car, I think, they make love, then they go up, boom, so, okay, this would be the most primitive reading that the movie plays on our, although we pretend to be liberals, permissive, we still have in our consciousness implicit guilt feelings and two standard prohibitions were violated. A, an illegitimate affair, extramarital sex, and B, social barrier, upper class girl, lower class guy. So, then... The idea would be to read this as a kind of a punishment, symbolic whatever punishment, for a transgression. But then you should look at it closely, more close, and you discover another thing. Look at even more precisely at the moment when iceberg 
hits, when the ship, ship rather hits the iceberg. It's not just after they make love. It's they go up onto the deck and she, Kate Winslet, tells him, listen, I've decided now I'm sick of my corrupted rich life. I will simply, tomorrow morning when we arrive to New York, I will drop my family. I will live with you. Even if we were poor, we would be poor. Even if we will be poor, we will blah, blah, blah. All that stuff, like triumph of authentic love. Even if poor, we will live together happily. At that point, exactly, it happens. This is already a more cynical, but I think more adequate reading. It's kind of a very romantic reading that really uh, the catastrophe occurs to prevent the true catastrophe. The true catastrophe would have been, of course, the two of them landing in New York and doing... You can imagine how a week or two after, you know... And, uh, <laughs> so it's as if the catastrophe occurs to save the, to save the idea of true love. And catastrophes often should be read in this way as blessings in disguise. It may be a trauma, for example, if some of you are naive leftists, to shock you. I think that the Soviet invasion, or rather Warsaw Pact, you remember in 68 to crush the so-called Prague Spring in August 68. And I can tell you, I was there. By pure surprise, I arrived to Prague on the... 20, on the 20th or 21st of August. And then I awakened in a student hostel, I was 20, 21, and I thought I heard some shooting, I wasn't sure, I went on sleep. Okay, but uh, I think it was the same type of catastrophe. Why? Because let's play a cynical game. What were really to happen without Soviet intervention? I don't think, and everybody agrees with me here, that there really was a chance of some authentic, democratic socialism and so on. One of the two things would have happened. Uh, either, uh, either the demand for freedom would have gone further and further, and simply Czechoslovakia would have joined Western, it would have become what they are today, a kind of a normal Western democracy, or the party, liberal as it was under Dubček, would have to reign and establish some kind of control, and we would just have this ordinary rhythm in socialist countries, you allow a little bit of liberalization then, no? And I think that it's, so it's precisely the Soviet intervention, I claim, which kept the dream alive. Oh my God, what kind of possibility and so on and so on. Often things, often things function like that, that it's the catastrophe itself which kept, keeps the dream alive. So, okay, that would be the second reading. But I think we should go even further. There is another scene which fascinated me so much, I noticed this detail already the first time when I saw the film, Titanic. And again, if you have it on DVD, if you don't believe it to me, check it. Remember when Leonardo DiCaprio is dying, freezing in water. She, he is in water, freezing, she is up on that piece of wood. Okay, and then... What happens exactly? The first thing that you should be attentive to is that the conversation between the two of them is a very strange one. It doesn't sound as lover's conversation. It sounds more as a kind of a priest advisor giving her Kate Wiesland uh, uh, 
orders, advises them like be true to yourself, live a good life. I said, this is how a priest is talking to you in a last conversation. Second thing, absolutely crucial. It's so shocking that I, the first time I couldn't even believe it, so I checked it repeatedly. When Kate Winslet notices that he is dead, she starts to shout, I will never go, I will never let you go. While she's shouting this, she's pushing him away. So I think these clues are to be read in the following way, that beneath the love story, there is another story told here. It's the story, the first version of which is, as far as I can judge, Rudyard Kipling's Captain's Courageous. This, incidentally, very reactionary myth of an upper-class kid who gets kind of a, caught in some kind of sterile uh, existence and needs a contact with lower classes to get in a vampire-like way to suck the blood of life energy, and then when you get revitalized, you can drop the guy. And that's precisely, I think, what's the function of Leonardo DiCaprio at this level. Remember, she's a girl in a life crisis, desperate, confused, and what he does is he quite literally restores her ego image. You remember how he paints literally, and that's what remains in that safe. He paints the portrait and so on. Once he restores her, he can disappear. He's literally a vanishing mediator. It's not even a, a, a love card. So it's this very reactionary myth of upper class, you know, when you get too sterile in your in your isolated existence, you need a little bit of contact with lower class so that then you can revitalize, return to upper class. So that's the real story. And I, I'm not saying the movie is inconsistent. I'm saying that precisely all these levels, one above the other, is how the movie should be read. Of course, now you will say, but the big fascination, of course, is, you know, all the special effects, the sheep going slowly down. I know, I know, I know. I'm not saying simply that, that, that the sheep is, uh, that that's not important. I'm just saying that what accounts for the, let's call it naively, emotional, ideological impact of the film is the combination of these two levels. Because we can imagine a film uh, as simply the story of a catastrophe. And there were some earlier versions like this. The most interesting one, I can advise you, look at it, it's not so bad. Do you know that in 43, 42, 43, German and Goebbels, Nazis, made a Titanic, which was very anti-British. You know, the corrupted English captain and so on. It's a pretty good version, like German, of Titanic. Sorry, yes? Is it true that it was also a book 10 years before it was a yeah, I quote it in my first book, yes, in my sublime object. Yes, this is very mysterious. Yet exactly the same story. A big transatlantic ship uh, supposed to be unsinkable sinks. The only difference, haha, <laughs> big one, is that in the book, published 10 years before it happens, it was called Titan. Not Titanic, but Titan. It's one of these mysterious. But that's the mystery of this event. How, although it was a shock, Somehow it did fit the imaginary. That's why I think it had some impact. Not only because, you know, through 
traumas are not simply traumas which happen out of nowhere. They surprise us, but how should I put it? In our fantasies, there was already uh, a place for them. Uh, okay, so uh, this is why, just to go for a minute back to Titanic, this is why I really hate the movie. Because, I, because it's the most dangerous, now I speak as a Stalinist, ideologically, because it pretends to be, even ironically, it's referred to as an example of Hollywood Marxism. You know, this ridiculous patronizing sympathy for lower classes. You know how it's all rich guys with one, two exceptions, like maybe the captain, the engineer. Rich, rich guys are evil then. The more you go low, the more they are kind, authentic community, blah, blah. But what I'm trying to tell you is that uh, beneath this patronizing admiration of the authenticity of lower classes, it's a very reactionary myth. And we should be here very uh, sensitive. Uh, remember, I claim that the standard idealizing of the poor, as you know, they are poor, but they live authentic lives and so on, is, it's only rich people who think like that. It's the same in architecture. I was at an architectural meeting in Australia where a guy who wanted to be politically, ideologically correct, presented on behalf of an architectural group from Australia their project, which was, he showed two pictures, photos, as the two poles. On the one hand, a kitchi, golden, how to call it, tape, water, pipe, or whatever. Tap, tap, yeah, golden kitchi. And on the other hand, a kind of a pure, innocent water pump, purely functional. And he said, that's to avoid this pure, modest functionality just to help people, you know, this proverbial manipulation, some tribe in Africa who doesn't have, they don't have drinking water. Or, yeah. But what he didn't get is that, and everybody knows this, even I spoke with some publicity people that, uh, how should I put it, uh, today at least, rich people like ascetic modesty, poor people like excessive kick. I asked these people, were they ever in a favela? I was once, friends, you know, this is pretty disgusting, but okay, we live in disgusting life. Times I did it. I visited some favelas as part of this favela tourism in, in Brazil. And you can see in favelas, it's not this model. No, they are as kitschy as they can be. It's rich, this is rich people's dream, this pure, modest functionality and so on and so on. I mean, when poor people perceive each other, they don't perceive themselves as, you know, this kind of poor but authentic life. No, they perceive themselves as evil, we try to exploit each other as much as possible, and so on, and so on. So, okay, but let me go on. So, that's what I hate about Titanic. But what I wanted to say, nonetheless, to go back to the main line, what we should bear in mind is how, uh, again, it's not a simple inconsistency and weakness, this multiple levels at which we can read the story. That is, this is what accounts for the strength of the story. So again, let's imagine Titanic only at the spectacular level. Uh, big ship sinking and so on. Frankly, it would have been boring. Okay, you would have interesting special effects, but nothing that surplus enjoyment, that surplus cause of desire to sustain your desire, it wouldn't have worked. The interesting thing is that the opposite 
story would also have been pretty boring. Imagine no catastrophe. Just the story of the destiny of a couple of people on a rich transatlantic voyage, it would also have been boring. I think it's precisely the combination of these two levels. Uh, and this is, again, I claim how Hollywood le left, uh, uh, works. Let me give you a couple of other improvisations here, before, uh, which I already used in some of my old texts. For example, uh, did you see, I quite like them, they, they can be disgusting, I will mention to you two big catastrophe films. One with uh, 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 Liv Tyler, Bruce Willis, uh, Ben Affleck, I think. How do you pronounce it in English? Armageddon. Yeah, yeah. Did you notice how, although it's officially the story about the big asteroid hitting the Earth, it has an incestuous background. This human interest story is Bruce Willis' father who doesn't want his daughter to go... Uh, so, at this more elementary libidinal level, you can read the catastrophe as father's wrath, incestuous fury, no, that guy will not screw my daughter, and so on, as the material, because it's, the, this is why the moment the father sacrifices, the moment the father accepts the amorous liaison of his daughter, he succeeds, the, 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 uh, the asteroid explodes, and so on and so on. You can really read, you can read it as a simple Oedipal incestuous story where, again, the father's fury, uh, the asteroid just materializes the father's incestuous fury. The opposite case, did you read the one, did you see the movie, it's called Deep Impact? It's again incest, it's again about asteroids hitting the Earth, but if you know, the story is there, uh, how is the, the girl called to play, Tia Leone, uh, the same incestuous story. She's furious at her father, who at the beginning of the film drops her mother and marries a young girl like her. It's simply incestuous fury. If he drops my mom, why didn't he pick up me? And, and, and you can really read the whole story as just acting out of her incestuous fury, which is why this is the only way to account for the culmination of the film. You remember when the asteroid is approaching Earth, she joins her father alone on a beach, the big wave is approaching, she embraces him, says, oh daddy, oh dad, and bump the <laughs> as happy an ending as you can get. In one of my books, I even made a comparison between these, you remember the famous love on the beach with waves from, this was the big revolution, early 50s, from here to eternity, where Deborah Kerr and uh, Bert Lancaster, there you have an ordinary uh, extramarital affair, so you have just small waves. Here you have a more serious incestuous affair, so the wave is a little bit bigger. No, <laughs> no but, uh, so you see my point. That's what accounts for the reverberation libidinal of the movie, the combination of these two levels, catastrophe and, uh, and so on and so on. Uh, now uh, we can go even further here and uh, to give you another example that I quite like, although it's a shitty movie. Did you see Michael Eptitz from 2001, uh, Enigma, the one about that uh, the Bletchley Park uh, uh, group of uh, crypto analysts, yeah. you know, who were trying to, yeah. who were trying to, to crack the, the, the cipher, the yeah. German Enigma? 
Again, this is Hollywood at its purest. Even if I noticed that the scenario was done by Tom Stoppard, who is supposed to be the serious playwright. But uh, what's the story? Again, the official focus of the film is the team is trying to crack the enigma. There is a German spy. But then the key is that the, the central figure, mathematician called Tom Jericho, uh, tries, uh, is split between the two women. One called Claire, a fatal suicide beauty, and an ordinary girl played incidentally by Kate Winslet from Titanic again. And uh, they are so stupid and tasteless in the film that somewhere half into the movie they even openly formulate, provide the formula of the film. Namely, at some point, one of them says that it's easy to crack, even if they are, I don't know how elaborated, the enigma of the German secret code. But there is the enigma of the woman, what the woman, which we can never crack, and so on and so on. So again, the whole movie explicitly plays on this duality of enigmas. The literal enigma to crack the code, and the enigma of that mysterious femme fatale, and so on and so on. Sorry, you? There's another strange enigma in this, in that... The person who really did crack the code was it's a pole, Alan Turing, who, uh, uh, who is gay. No, no, I know, I have it here written, I didn't want to go too far. I know, this is how ideology also works, how they, they, they heterosexualized him and so on, no? Yeah, well, he was, he, his life was ruined when they, the British... Uh, I know. ...ruined his life when they found out that he was gay. No, no, I know, I, I, I know all that story, uh, which, uh, and uh, it's even more... Ironic in that you know that that uh, you know that uh, that uh, that uh, my uh, job Alan Turing yes you know that when he made a test when he made the famous test Turing, Turing test but you know that the official version of the test is uh, if you can talk with the blah 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 and if you cannot guess distinguish if it's human or not then. The, the yeah, but do you know that this is the second version of the test? Do you know that his first version was that if you cannot distinguish, if you cannot distinguish if it's a woman or a man, the first version, interestingly enough, was the sexual difference. Only then. But again, what I wanted to tell you here very briefly is that how again beware of these two levels. Now let's go a step further. Here, okay, we have these two levels, but. Uh, these two levels, here we have the elementary form, where the second level is not some psychoanalytic, obscene, mystery, whatever. It's just some apparently marginal love interest story, but although it appears marginal, it's crucial for how the story works. Because you can imagine the same movie, Enigma, without this, the Enigma of a woman, love interest. I mean, they were doing films like this in X socialist country, Soviet bloc, which is why they were so boring, because <laughs> no? you need this two levels interaction. And uh, let's go further. I, here, I really, I was already did it in the cup, uh, past years here, I would really like to show you, I didn't bring it to me, but maybe you know it, another clip to show you how this works. You saw, of course, Casablanca. You remember a wonderful scene which I think embodies, like in 10 seconds, you can learn basically how Hollywood works, this ambiguity of censorship. The scene two-thirds into the film, where, in the middle of the night, Ingrid Bergman, Lisa or what she calls, 
comes to Humphrey Bogart, to Rick's Cafe, asking him for the, those famous papers, visa, whatever, and uh, they had a conversation, then they embrace, fade out, and then you see for three seconds the tower of the Casablanca airport, the light turning around, then you return to the room, the two of them, conversation going on. Of course, every normal human being asks a simple question here. Did they do it or not? That is to say, are these three seconds and a half or two and a half just, just uh, do they stand just for the real time so that the same conversation goes on or did they make love? Now, it was a guy incidentally called uh, Tom Moldby who did a wonderful detailed analysis of this scene in a volume called post-theory. Good volume, which is directed against psychoanalysis, but this analysis... What he demonstrated to Moldy is the following, that it's not so much that the situation is ambiguous, but that the situation is consciously inconsistent. That is to say, the movie provides a whole series of clues indicating that they did do it. First, as you probably know, in this case code Hollywood, uh, if uh, 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 a woman and a man have a conversation and then they embrace and then you have a fade out, this was a codified way to indicate there was a sex act. Sex act. Another thing, after we return to them, they are smoking. I mean, you know this proverb, which is the second and the third most pleasant thing in the world, the drink before and the smoke afterwards and so on. So this was also one of the codified ways in Hollywood to signal sex act, not to mention the most more vulgar one, the tower and so on, uh, uh, phallic tower. On the other hand, you have a whole series of clues indicating that they didn't do it. Uh, there is no bad, they are dressed in the same dresses, the same conversation seems to go on, and so on. And Maltby, as Maltby, this guy who wrote the analysis, indicates very nicely, uh, this is how ideology functions in Hollywood. The movie plays simultaneously on both registers. The, like, the movie treats you as someone who should be allowed a forbidden pleasure, but who should at the same time be allowed to pretend that there is no dirty secret. It's as if I know you want to imagine what dirty things they were doing, but so that you will not be embarrassed or so that you will not feel guilty confronted with your superego moral agency, I will also provide for you a kind of a moral screen, so that, you know, you can say to your superego watching you, nothing happened, just the same conversation went on, but at the same time, the movie gives you precise clues, and there is, I forgot the, the guy, I quoted my, when I analyzed this, there is a wonderful pornographic short story, uh, as the time goes by, which is a short story, 20 pages, describing just this scene from Casablanca. It starts with the same scene, the two of them talking, and then it ends in the same way, but the main part of the story, 10 pages, is the detailed, hardcore, pornographic description of what they were doing. And what is so nice, 
so dirty about the story is that it gives a very obscene twist to the most famous phrases we all know for Casablanca. You know that famous, here's to you, kid. You know, in the story, he gives her, her erected penis to swallow it and says, here's to you, kid, and so on. <laughs> but, but I think, uh, I don't think there is anything liberating in it. I prefer this Hollywood ambiguity, you know. It functions on two levels. And this is absolutely crucial. We will, I will return to this to the end. This is absolutely crucial as to how ideology functions. That, uh, it, why am I mentioning this? Because some of my friends still interpret this, how should I call it, obscene underground of Hollywood, all these hints at homosexuality, at illicit sex, as some kind of subversion. You know, like we have the official patriarchal Puritan ideology, but then you see the traces of subversion. My point is simply that this subversion is not really subversive, that it's strictly part of the system. It's that uh, for, let's say, American ideological imaginary to function, you don't need only the official Puritan, whatever, nothing happened. You also need all this implicit, the implicit message, what obscene things were going on, and so on and so on. Ideologies, the two of them together. It's absolutely crucial. To inc which is why, as I did already in my early books, I analyzed in detail, for example, did you see a movie, it's a kind of a liberal drama, but I like the central point of the movie, not so much the movie itself. Did you see that legal, military, legal melodrama, A Few Good Men, with Tom Cruise and so on? You remember what they refer to in the film as the red coat? This of publicly not admitted, but obscene legal regulation in the military where uh, implicitly you are allowed to, I don't know, you beat your colleagues if they don't, uh, and so on. So this is also, and I can tell you from my own experience, this is my experience in the Yugoslav army where I served for a year. How you have the official level military rules, and then you have all this set of complex obscene rules. In the United States, when Bush was elected, I noticed uh, that he was a member of some bones and some... Bones. Bones. This is what I'm talking about. All these obscene rituals and so on and so on, they are... This is not any kind of subversion. Ideology needs all this to reproduce itself. Which is why, that's my usual example of this, I like so much those obscene, how do you call them, marching chants, you know, the songs that Marines are singing. Where the works are usually some kind of mixture between nonsense rhymes and obscenity. Like, I remember, I think it's precisely from, no, it's from An Officer and a Gentleman, I think. Where the song is something like, sorry for the obscenity, uh, but I'm not really sorry. <laughs> something like, I don't know, but I was told that Eskimo pussies are rather cold. You know, this is obscenity. My point is, it's not any kind of subversion. You need this. That's how the military machine functions. You need all this uh, code red or whatever, obscene rules. And that was my fundamental experience, for example, in the Yugoslav army. How uh, uh, homosexuality, uh, it wasn't simply prohibited. The usual story is, you know, it's very homophobic, the army. It is true, superficially it was homophobic. For example, 
whenever any of our colleagues uh, was, if one was discovered to be gay, it was, life was hell for him. He was dismissed, but those couple of days before he was officially dismissed from the army, he was, I don't know, beaten, beaten every night by colleagues and so on, totally homophobic. What fascinated me is another thing, how this homophobia was much more ambiguous than it could appear. It was a kind of a excessive reaction to a latent homophobia, sorry, latent, uh, uh, latent uh, homosexual strain which permitted the entire life. For example, I, I never was in a community where all the daily expressions had a kind of a joking homosexual undertone. For example, I remember when we, I, when we greeted each other after awakening, we didn't say good morning, we said I smoke yours, with reference to. This was, and it was totally neutral, we even didn't laugh, it became totally, or all these dirty homosexual jokes and so on, it was, this is what interests me, how, it's not simply homophobic, it's, but, uh, it's at the same time playing on these latent homophobic jokes, but totally thwarted homosexuality, absolutely prohibited to be directly enacted. And again, my point is that you need both. You need both. And wait a minute, don't now misunderstand me here. My point is not what you find at some point even with Adorno. Adorno had this tendency sometimes, he was a little bit and he, you find clear traces of homophobia in Adorno. At some point, he had this low-level step of the Nazis that the Nazi party is really some kind of uh, homosexuals in power, that it's kind of a homosexual... No, 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 I'm not saying this. I'm saying that it's much more ambiguous. I'm saying that precisely this kind of thwarted homosexuality is most aggressive to open homosexuality. But again, my point is that you, you, you need both levels. And this is what, again, from when I was young, fascinated me. How ideology, how what, you, what it may appear to you as a subversion, like making fun of it, telling jokes and so on, how it's really part of the, part of the game. For example, this is why I was always so fascinated with jokes in communist countries. Uh, political jokes, they were excellent. I don't think, this is for me the greatest sacrifice, the greatest loss, cultural loss of the fall of socialism was that these jokes disappeared. They were, I think, of the highest level, some jokes very complex and so on and so on, political jokes, no? But uh, they disappeared. Uh, of course, now you will say, but they were prohibited. They were uh, you could be arrested. Not really. It was much more ambiguous. I think they were strictly part of the system. They strictly functions as a way to, how do you put it, the vulgar expression, let the steam off or whatever. They were, they were really part of it. There were even, I love this story, although it's not true, there were even some paranoiac theorists who claimed that there was some secret department of the secret police where they manufactured these jokes to keep the population satisfied, as it were, no? 
and I, 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 in a way, in a way, I believe in it because in the last years of Yugo, Yugoslavia, where it was already communist Yugoslavia, where all the regime was already in kind of a decadence, something wonderful happened to remain popular. Uh, this was a golden era for me because communists in power knew they were lost, knew that they will lose power, so they did everything desperately, more or less, to remain popular and. Some of them even tried to regain some kind of... If you are from ex-Yugoslavia, you may remember the Croatian guy, Mika Spiriak, for example, was doing this. He proudly collected jokes about, and in Slovenia, that disgusting fat guy, Stane Dolanski, was doing it. They proudly collected jokes about themselves and used them in their used them in their speeches and so on and so on. So you even had this level of obscenity, and what intrigues me, now I will give you another movie which partially falsifies my theory, but my God, it's so, it really, you will say I'm, I'm a bad guy, it's difficult to shock me, I was a little bit shocked, depressingly, I'm really sad I didn't bring it with myself, I got a publicity copy from a friend of mine in Hollywood, no, not a big friend, <laughs> uh, uh, well, because my idea is these jokes, all these functions, if it remains, as it were, of part of this non-public, no, we shouldn't say private space, because it's not really private space. It's, let's call it non-public, but still communal space, how should I put it, no? This obscene supplement to to the power structure, uh, 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 to what extent can this be rendered public? And I got one example which I thought it cannot. It's really a depressive story. I'm really sad. Why didn't I bring it with me? It would be worth seeing. It's maybe the most depressive documentary I've seen. It's a uh, a documentary by a Dutch group, maybe you've heard about it, I forgot the names, I'm a racist, I cannot remember those stupid strange names and so on. Uh, uh, but I'm a democratic racist, that is to say, you know what's for me the only way to fight racism, to be a racist against everyone. <laughs> you mean, like in old Yugoslavia, I think one should tell bad jokes, racist jokes against all nations, that's the only way to overcome nationalism. Okay. It's really a depressing film. It's about, you remember in 66, or when, there was that communist coup and then the military counter coup in Indonesia, where it was followed by one of the greatest bloodbath. They think that about two million of suspected communists, but mostly Chinese, were slaughtered. Okay, these two, uh, is it Dutch or not? It's not even Dutch, it's Danish, I think. Guys made a documentary about a group of this who, as young men, were organizing one of these murder gangs, killing communists. The shot is the following one. They, it's a documentary about them, not secretly made. These people are now, one is member of the Senate, the other is a big businessman, and they don't hide anything. They proudly made, wanted to, a documentary to be made where they publicly enact and describe 
oh, you see, the best way to torture a woman was in this way, if you try to strangle her, her legs went apart, it was easier to rape, it's how, that's what shocked me, and this movie was not for the West, it was shown there in Indonesia, and then there was in the state TV, one of the main programs, a public show, public, sorry, talk, where these guys presented the movie and openly boasted about it, and it's the most obscene TV conversation I saw, where the guy described how he raped women, what was his preferred style, and then the moderator says, what a nice confession, one big applause for the gentleman, and so on, and so on. I thought this shouldn't be possible, but obviously it is, to go, as it were, to go to the end. Because, you know, even like the this dead police squads, torturers in Argentina, Brazil, Chile. Nonetheless, okay, if they are caught, they just give some vague indications like we did it for our country, it was necessary to do. But to get someone who is not only openly boasting about it, but even more, they have a whole theory of how they were imitating Hollywood heroes. For example, one of their heroes was Humphrey Bogart, and so on and so on, and they then enact this. It's an extremely obscene thing where they, these older murderers, uh, uh, accepted to be dressed like Humphrey Bogart in the 40s, and then a little bit like Fred Astaire, they stage uh, musical numbers, and then they describe their tortures, and so on and so on. So it's, it's the free man. You can fight it. Just put... If you put free men, plural, like F-R-I-I-M-I-N-E-N, free men and put in Indonesia or what, I think you will get it immediately. But I got the movie. And it's, uh, no, again, the problem is what kind of, to use the standard moralistic term, what kind of moral vacuum do we have here that this is openly possible? Now, to avoid a misunderstanding, Another of my standard points. I'm not a Puritan here. My point is not all obscenities automatically serve power. I claim I'm more ambiguous here. I claim that some kind of obscenities serve, can be not only appropriated, but are directly in the function of power. Power doesn't function without this obscene background. On the other hand, I claim they can play a very positive role. For example, referring to two of you from my, our ex-country, Yugoslavia, I have extremely good memories from my youth about jokes we in ex-Yugoslavia were telling to each other about our nations, and the way I remember them, they were not jokes in this aggressive mode of humiliating the other. Mostly, we were when I met a Serb or a Montenegro or a Croat friend, it was mostly who will tell a better joke about oneself. You know that each of the nations in ex-Yugoslavia was identified with a certain racist, whatever you call it, feature. Like, we Slovenes were supposed to be misers. Uh, 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 Montenegro are lazy. Bosnians are kind of an obscene cunningness and so on. And I remember one, and now you, I claim these jokes played an extremely positive role of establishing true obscene solidarity. 
Because that's, I think, I claim how it functions. Let's be clear. Let's say we meet, belonging to different groups. What is the symbolic point at which we really become friends? If we remain at this official level, oh, what a wonderful food you have, what a wonderful folkloric dance is, fuck off, that's... Uh, you know, the moment you exchange an obscenity, how should I put it, no? At that point, it begins. And it did... Uh, and so, uh, I remember, for example, I don't know, we Slovenes are supposed to be misers, so I usually tell my Balkan other friends, that, no, they're not even so good, a standard Slovene joke is, for example, an old Slovene farmer is dying in his bed and all the families around him. And he says, are you all here? My granddaughter, my son, yeah, we are all here. Then he said, but if you are all here, why is then light on there in the corridor, you know? <laughs> the old miser. Then, I don't know, the standard vulgar Montenegro joke playing on their laziness. You know that Montenegro is also an earthquake country. How does a Montenegro guy masturbate? He digs a hole in the earth and puts the penis in. He's even too lazy to move, he waits for the earth. You have all, there are even better, the most elegant, the Bosnian obscene jokes, I know. For example, they make very nicely fun of these uh, international efforts to educate them, you know. Like it's a joke that now they got a teacher from abroad who wants to teach them classical education in a more creative way and uh, wants to teach them classical music. And the teacher says to Bosnian pupils, uh, we will not just learn data of composers, we will do it in a creative way. So each of you should, A, tell an idea, and then uh, composition by Beethoven with you associate with this idea. So a girl said, a nice, a nice piece of grass, forests, bambi, a stream, it's of course pastoral symphony. Then a boy said, battle, heroism, revolution, of course, heroica. And then the Bosnian guy comes and says, a big prick like this arrested one. He said, what's this? He said, you know that, he said, uh, fear Eloise, for Eloise. <laughs> for the, okay. <laughs> but I think it works so nicely, this. What I, and now you will say I'm dreaming. I'm not. I'll give you a proof. When I remember, I'm old enough, when serious, uh, Real racist tensions, ethnic tensions, start to arouse in early 80s, from 80s onwards, these jokes practically disappeared, I remember. They, and only now they are, so this is for me a kind of, a, if you want, material proof that uh, you need this kind of, how should I put it, exchange of obscenity. I cannot restrain telling you, maybe you know it, but... It's in a book of mine which not many people read, so probably you don't know it. My favorite story, it's perfect. It's from what happened to me in the army. When I was friendly with an Albanian soldier, and we, uh, we wanted to become really friends. Of course, the condition was to exchange an obscenity. So how to do it? Of course, Albanians, this is a cliche, maybe it's partly true, are very sensitive on humiliating with aggressive sexual remarks their not so much wife as sister or mother, no? So this Albanian friend of mine, who was incidentally educated, uh, university and so on, approached me one morning and said, uh, 
I fuck your mother. I screw your mother. Now I knew this was really an offer of friendship, and he expected me to answer appropriately. Believe me, I don't have problems with it. I immediately answered it, go ahead after I finish with your system. <laughs> the point is that now come the mystery. We just smiled, and that was it. We never talked about it. This was just a sign that we are really friends. We did not, as you would have expected, then uh, 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 spend all the time telling dirt. We never engaged. It was just this token. The only thing that remained is that every morning when we met, instead of saying the usual, I smoke yours or good morning, whatever, he just told me, mother, I said, sister. Without any smile. It just meant we are still friends, of the book, no? It worked, it, worked per it worked perfectly. Now, of course, I'm here a good feminist, so that you will not think that I am crazy. I'm well aware of the two limitations of this story. One is that it's the standard male chauvinist story about exchange of women. No? So all I can say is I would like to live in a society where wouldn't you like to meet your friend like I screw your father, go ahead after I screw your brother. <laughs> it would be nice to do it also if the other sex would be able to do it. <laughs> the other thing is the problem of hierarchy, of course. No? We were able to do it because we were on the same level, both private, ordinary soldiers. Like, I cannot imagine myself approaching uh, a high officer and telling him <laughs> and so on. No? If he does it, some high officers were doing this to me because they wanted, as it were, to establish human contact. I hated it because this is the worst. You know, when those who have power over you tries to behave as colleagues, this for me was never liberating, but even power redoubled. Because they want to retain all the power they have, but on the top of it, I prefer open authority. I hate these postmodern bosses, you know who, uh, pretend, but we are friends, ask you about your sex life, let's go drinking. This is disgusting for me. They still have the power, but they pretend as if, you know, we are really colleagues and so on and so on. I don't buy that. Okay, uh, so uh, my point is that this is what always fascinated me. This, uh, how to put it, how this obscenity, the ambiguity of obscenity, on the one hand in, it sustains the system, on the other hand, I'm not totally condemning it, it can play a positive role. What I'm just saying is that when you, you should be, when something is presented to you as, how should I put it, subversive, all these secret, dirty dreams and so on, you should be very careful as to how this effectively functions. Sometimes I claim the best thing to do is not to, not to, to, to be even more, how to put it, uh, more, 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 more Puritan than the official ideology. To, to stick just to the explicit rules and to ignore the implicit rules, as it were. Because this is another example that I use in my books. For example, let's imagine a nice, nice, in the horrible sense, small city in the south of the United States, Mississippi, wherever, in the 20s, with Ku Klux Klan and so on. You had the official ideology, Christianity and so on, and then you have Ku Klux Klan, which was strictly what we call 
a carnivalesque transgression. Uh, let's imagine someone who violates the explicit rules, doesn't go to church, gets drunk, and so on. He would still have been one of us. But let's imagine someone who violates the implicit rules, for example, denounces Ku Klux Klan to police, you would have been killed or at least excluded immediately. What accounts for the group identity is precisely this participation in the common transgression, how should I put it? I mean, I claim that some kind of rituals of common transgression, violating your own explicit ideology, are, are, absolutely, are, absolutely, are absolutely crucial for this. That's the true transgression. The, the real way to exclude yourself is to ignore or violate these implicit rules. Which brings me back to another point where one of you he was sitting yesterday there at Norris today, was talking about uh, Bakhtin and so on. That's the problem I have not so much with Mikhail Bakhtin, you know, the Russian guy who did not only dialogue but also this theory of carnival, carnivalist suspension. He wrote Bakhtin a wonderful book also on Francois Rabelais, where he developed in detail this theory of uh, the necessary social role of so-called Carnivalist suspension of public rules. You know that orgies, rules suspended, king is a beggar, beggar is a king, and so on and so on. Where I disagree, again, not so much with Bakhtin as with some of his followers, I disagree with those who claim that there is any kind of liberating dimension in this carnival. My proof is... Uh, here, empirically even. Maybe you heard about him. I don't agree with him theoretically, but he's an intelligent guy. Boris Groys, the Russian art theorist who worked for a long time in Germany. Now he tries to penetrate the United States. <laughs> he told me that uh, he got contact with some guys in Russia who have access to Mikhail Bakhtin archives. Mikhail Bakhtin was writing his work when he was exiled to Kazan, I think. That's how he survived the Stalinist purges. Okay, the point is that it's clear from the manuscripts that the true model for Carnival, for Bakhtin, were Stalinist purges. You know, it's because there was an element of madness in them. You know, today you are the king, member of Politburo, tomorrow you are English spy and so on. So the suggestion is that one way to read the figure, interpret the figure of Stalin is that kind of a, how should I put it, a, a king of the carnival, the guy who runs this show where your fate could be up and down and so on and so on. So again, also I intended to read in this way the uh, Ku Klux Klan. I mean, wasn't, or to, to be very brutal, to refer more to contemporary experience, uh, uh, if you, a couple of boys, get drunk and rape a couple of girls in a gangbang, I mean, if there ever was a carnival, this is a carnival. I hope you got my point. I'm not justifying the rape. On the opposite, I'm saying that I don't really believe in this, how should I call it, liberating power of carnival. It's a very ambiguous thing. Adorno wrote some very good analysis where he interpreted even the Nazi pogroms and so on as some kind of a carnivalesque suspension of order and so on. So again, let's not fall too quickly into this celebrating oh, that 
wonderful moment of liberation, carnival, no rules, up, down, down, up. No, I claim that every power needs some kind of carnival, some kind of carnivalist. Yes, please. I think it was going to mention that I believe in dialogism, dialogism because I think it situates the conversation interpersonally. I, I believe it as a method more than a conclusion. I'm not sure I would, I would subscribe to everything that he said, but I think he has an interesting method of, of creating social space. And how he imagines culture, how he imagines the creation of self through, through uh, the interlocutor. The self is defined through the interlocution. Yeah, but how do you apply this to... Uh, there must be a connection. How? Okay, to put it in very simplistic terms, Bakhtin did two great things. A, all this idea of dialogic, well, the big author of reference was Dostoevsky, no? And then Carnival, where the big reference was Rabelais. How do you... Okay, I can well see the link, because it's clear that there are those intense moments of dialogue in Dostoevsky novels, for example, you know, the famous scene at the end of the first part of The Idiot, where uh, Prince, or who does it, throws money into the fire and so on, which have this kind of carnivalesque suspension of rules dimension. But nonetheless, it's not totally clear to me how, how, uh, how the two are linked. What I'm saying, again, I agree with Bakhtin. I'm just saying that sometimes we read Bakhtin in a well-to-simplified way is simply celebrating, oh my god, carnival. We should just be aware that, that how should I put it, uh, uh, Auschwitz was also for Nazis in a way, literally. My, my god, if you read Levy, it's clear that it was also in a very obscene way a carnivalesque place. A place where rules were suspended, you were allowed to enact your... your, your to, to support your point, there's a disturbing, well, strange book called This Way for the Gas, Ladies and Gentlemen, by Tadeusz Bronowski. Ah, Borowski, yeah, Borowski. yeah, yeah. I, I know and I agree totally with you, even let's make a step further here. Uh, what always intrigued me, and yeah, I know you are then. I no, I want just to finish my narcissistic trip then. <laughs> uh, uh, I, uh, this is what intrigued me also. Why are, to ask you a very simple question, why are, why is it almost impossible to do a good, serious tragedy about Holocaust? Why are all movies about Holocaust, which are at least tolerable comedies? I think there is a necessity in it. Uh, and no, no, don't be, I will not make tasteless. Uh, okay, I will legitimize myself. I saw this theory in Jerusalem, in a big public talk where in first row I remember there were old ladies with numbers here sitting, and they agreed with me. The point, the point is that to make a tragedy, you know, well, how should I put it? Tragedy is not when things are really horrible. Tragedy is always only possible when you remain within a certain limits of decency. How should you know? In order to retain your tragic dignity, the humiliation must not be total. Like, if you cannot imagine in Auschwitz, okay, you can, but strictly as an exception, you know, a Jew heroically, tragically confronting the Nazi as some Jewish friends told me 
The point is not that the Jews were not able to do it. The point is that if you portray Auschwitz in this way, you give too much, you concede too much to the Nazis. You diminish the level of the horror that it was going on there. The horror there was so horrible, the terror to the victims, that you were deprived of even the possibility of the space to play this with dignity, this tragic role of a victim. And the same, at a different level, goes also for Stalinist trials. If you look at those horrible scenes, uh, we have some of them on movies, on, on uh, accused in the Stalinist show trials, confessing. The situation was so terrifying, there was no space for playing the tragic role. The only way to do it is through comedy. But what kind of comedy? Uh, not comedy where you laugh, but comedy where the fact that it, there is something comic about it makes it in a way even more horrible. For example, I read recently, re-read, of course, Primo Levis, if this is a man. You remember, if you read it, he describes there a scene of so-called selectia uh, in Polish, because the capos were Polish, selection. Every month or two months, doesn't matter, all the, from all the barracks, the prisoners, were, it, they were inspected by an SS doctor, and it was decided, like, do you live or do you die, no? But how was this done? The doctor with the list was sitting behind a table with the list, and you had to run naked in front of the doctor. You were really literally given just two, three seconds. And sometimes it even happened, the doctor made the confusion, and then he put you either on one or on the other list. You are guests, you can survive. Of course, they learned a couple of days in advance when this selection will take place. And the way uh, Primo Levi, this, your, it was in your interest to appear as healthy and uh, strong as possible. So all these small tricks that the prisoners tried to learn, how to pinch your lips to uh, appear not to pay, how to move and so on, and this idea of now I should run, will he note me or not, I'm sorry to tell you, but there is something not to laugh. Isn't there something almost, I'm tempted to say, comical about it? But of course, comical in an extremely, in an, in an extremely tragic way. And I, again, I think that here it's not good enough, uh, the movie, Roberto Benigni. Do you know why? Because uh, it's way too humanizing. It avoids the horror. How? The hero played by Benigni is still this kind of a standard trickster, you know, the, the, the cunning guy who can survive all the ordeals and so on and so on. And the second thing I don't like is that all the comedy is nonetheless, as it were, sublimated at the end, the last scene you remember, when his son remembers him, remember you are not allowed to, you are not supposed to laugh, you are supposed to cry. I think that to make uh, life is beautiful, a truly horrible film, one should change the story a little bit. You know how, you, I mean, not to tell you, that you know the movie probably, you know, you know the, story, uh, the father, so that his son swallows, can survive Auschwitz or whatever, the father tells him the story that this is not really a camp, they are there voluntarily, it's just a kind of a big test, whatever, if they 
survive without wanting to leave, they will be presented by a price at the end, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Imagine one complication, that at the end, instead of the father, the son will be dead. This would already make it more serious, but for me, the truly traumatic element would have been the following change. Imagine that at the film's end, father, who was again staging a spectacle for the son, pretending, you know, this is just a game, father were to discover that his small son knew all the time the reality. He just feigned to believe the son, to believe his father, to make it less painful to, to the father. That would make it a much more desperate, the feeling. I, I think something like that should have been done, which is why I much prefer, as a Holocaust movie, did you see Pasqualino set a bellezza? Yeah. This totally desperate, where you have fun, but at the end you don't have any redemption, you have just some kind of a total despair, and so on. That's much more, much more, uh, much more up to the point. So again, the lesson here is that uh, tragedy is not tragic to the end of that movie, you know. In tragedy, you are still given a space for this tragic beauty, like Antigone, oh, heroically opposing crown, no, I was made to die, I prefer to die, and so on, whatever. That's not, that's not enough, in a way. Okay, we did, no, 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 we go on, I would prefer to, you know what? Uh, 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 sorry, please, please, I'm sorry, yeah, please. Um, when you say that the carnival is not always liberating, yeah. uh, especially the Brazilian carnival, I think. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> but um, do you hold the same analysis for, for example, storming the Winter Palace in Eisenstein, or uh, the fact that after a protest there might be more laws that will ah, here, the protest? I got your point. What I would have done here, I did it in some of my books, is... Of course, one has to squeeze out of this by introducing further distinctions. Uh, I don't think that really functions as carnival, and I think you can find a distinction, this distinction clearly in Eisenstein's work itself. You have a murderous carnival there, you know, the famous scene towards the end of Ivan the Terrible Part Two, the only colored, really. There you have the murderous carnival. It is something absolutely breathtaking what Eisenstein does there. He portrays those oprichniks, that is to say, even the terribles, the Tsars, basically secret police, who are dancing almost in a kind of a musical number, a little bit of Kabuki style, a little bit of Hollywood. Uh, you know that Eisenstein was consciously imitating even Hollywood there. Eisenstein got this. This is his greatness. So I think that we should distinguish two things. On the one hand, I know what you are referring to. There are this kind of excessive, destructive, liberating, violent scenes which you find in early silent Eisenstein. For example, in October, you remember when the sailors break into Winter Palace and in the basement they found glasses of champagne and just break them off. The most famous case. It's, it would have been his best film. It's unfortunately destroyed. We just have clips. I mean, just not even clips, just uh, photos from uh, his, that Be Beijing Meadow, that movie where a group of young Komsomols breaks into a church and start to destroy the church. And it's kind of a 
carnavalesque scene, but I think that this type of violence is to be strictly opposed, and Eisenstein knew this is not the same as the orgy of power, how should I put it? One should hear, one should draw, one should draw, one should draw, one should draw the difference here. Sorry, uh, any other question before we move onwards here? Because what I want to do is, because yesterday you had some problems, uh, uh, you mentioned that you had enough of that you, uh, that you had enough of Fritzl, no? So, okay, I propose to skip Fritzl. My only point was that what, uh, I mean, Fritzl, Austria, no, let's skip that. No, what fascinated me is the, sorry? She's not here. The Austrian, yes. The Austrian Bhutan girl. Yeah, she claims she didn't know about Sorry? She chose not to come because you were going to talk about that. Today. Ah, okay, okay. Then let's go on, okay. No, because what I want to do is talk, I want to spend the rest of the time today precisely elaborating on different modalities on this, of this split. Okay, so let me, to finish the first part, go a little bit into the friction domain where what I was talking about is two levels of how ideology works, the official public level explicit rules and this obscene supplement. The first thing that cannot but strike the eye about this Fritzl affair is that he, Fritzl, the head of the family, didn't he literally realize this split even architecturally? You know how was his house rebuilt? You have the first floor, the official public space and beneath the obscene transgressive space, the two of them belonging together. What uh, fascinates me here, the first thing to note is how uh, when people, you know people usually accuse Freud of being a total idiot, that when he had that idea of Urfater, primordial father who was allowed to screw all the women, daughters and so on, but the case of Fritzl gives us an idea of how we should read Freud here. He didn't mean it as, we of course shouldn't read it the way probably Freud naively meant it as a real fact of, uh, first, uh, of primitive history of humanity that there was. A, no, it's more a kind of a fantasy supplement. In the same way as there is no official Hollywood without all those dirty obscene dreams, there is no symbolic father, benevolent, paternal authority without this background. And uh, this is what happened here. I claim that uh, what Fritzl did is that he simply enacted what is all the time here as a kind of a phantasmatic background of the paternal authority. My God, I remember my, my own father, who was supposed to be a decent, ordinary father, blah, 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 respectful. But I remember once he was mad at me, even now it shocks me. He exploded in a rage and started shouting at me, do you know that you are a nobody? Do you know that I created you and I can do whatever I want to you? Do you know that if I want, I can kill you? Do you know that... It, it, it shocked me how beneath a respectable father, moral ideal, it was... All of a sudden, it was all of a sudden this kind of a dream of omnipotence. So I claim that 
what Fritz did is, and it happens very rarely, is that he simply realized, that's why he was a madman, materialized, literally, already in the, in the uh, how should I put it, in the, in the architectural structure of his house, this division between uh, uh, paternal law, symbolic father, and the obscene uh, superego father. Uh, uh, then another thing is, okay, I will go very fast because I don't want to dwell on this too much, on uh, how defensive the analysis were when they tried to reduce the case of Fritzl to some kind of Austrian pathology. I think this was a too easy way out. It's easy to relativize it, to just blame the Austrians, how should I put it, no? You, they, they, they claimed that there was some kind of a dark connection between the Austrian Nazi past and so on, but, and, but wait a minute, quite naively this is wrong, because if they claimed only in a society which was still marked, branded by Nazism, could people ignore each other's evil, but wait a minute, what we usually associate with Nazism is that people spy upon each other and so on, and if anything, there was not enough spying going on here. No, the mystery was that nobody noticed, or at least pretended not to notice. So, again, I don't think, I don't think we should, in this simple way, put the blame on the Austrians. We should be more radical and look for the traces of the same fantasy in other countries' literatures. For example, uh, are you aware of this motive, which is very interesting in American literature, of this early brutal industrialist raping his daughter? You have it in Tender is the Night, you have it in many, many other novels, and so on and so on. I mean, the analysis could be... So, again, this brings me to... to this brings me to the sound of music. What I find so fascinating in this film is its libidinal kitsch ambiguity. Namely, I think that no wonder the film was such a triumph. It, you have there also, at the pure level, this, in a pure form, this duality. In what sense. First, it's a very primitive analysis that I already did in some of my books. What, one of the reasons I think this movie is so attractive is that its message between the lines delivered by the texture of the movie is exactly the opposite of its explicit message. Namely, the explicit message is political. It's small, proud Austrians resisting the Nazi invasion. Okay, but look at the texture of the film. How are the Nazis that you see in the film portrayed? Basically as corrupted Jews. You remember the guy who is the Nazi manager of Salzburg Games had this kind of a typically, not of real Jews, but the anti-Semitic image, you know, in a tuxedo, smoking these thin cigarettes, and so on and so on. And remember how are the Austrian portrayed? It's kind of a smallish, beautiful fascist, the kind of small, organic community with leather trousers, and so on and so on. So I like this contrast, how the message you really get is small, honest fascists uh, resisting the Jewish invasion or whatever. It plays nicely <coughs> on this. <coughs> Another thing, are we aware 
of the obscenity of the film. By this I mean that uh, there are a couple of scenes in the film which I find so embarrassing that I, I simply blush and cannot even watch them. For example, you remember like one third into the film when in this Von Trapp family when uh, they're, they're, they have a big reception, guests and the family, uh, the children sing a song, this Auf Wiedersehen, Goodbye and so on. I found this so embarrassing <laughs> that I simply can But there is one, the ultimate embarrassing thing. Uh, basically, beneath all this patriarchal blah blah blah, uh, staff, authority, education, the movie is really a very obscene story. It's, it's a story about a nun who needs to get laid, and so on. <laughs> I mean, you know the first song after the introduction, how do you solve a problem like Maria? The answer is, find someone to fuck her. <laughs> the whole film is the story about this, quite, quite literally, if you don't believe me. There is a crucial scene of the film. Uh, which I think tells everything and brings us to the hypocrisy of official Catholic, official Catholicism. This is for me the obscenity at its purest. You remember uh, Maria goes there, then she discovers she is in love with the Baron and escapes back to the convent, monastery, whatever. Then she still wants to fuck, to cut a long story short. So she goes to Mother Superior and approaches her like, I still have desires, uh, like, punish me more. And then comes the ultimate obscenity. Remember that the mother superior, you would expect her to say, no, pray more, fast, no. Mother superior sings her the most obscene song. It starts with climb every mountain. <laughs> basically, basically, her message is, go back and seduce the guy. Fuck him. Go back and seduce the guys. You know how my attention was drawn to this song? When I saw the film in Yugoslavia, we had there for some time a very intelligent censorship. They just said, it was a communist Yugoslavia in the late 60s, they censored it a little bit here and there. They left exactly the way it is, Sound of Music. They just cut out this song. And I think they were totally right. Because this song describes the zero level formula of how Catholicism really functions. It's not renounce, it's pretend to renounce and you can have all you want. It's like to be very brutal and cynical. It's do you like to screw small children? Become a priest, you can have them as It's always this kind of an obscene promise of... No, I'm not kidding here. I deeply respect Catholics. And a good friend of mine, how is he called the one? My God, I forgot his name. The American well-known Catholic uh, writer who wrote a very good book, critical on John Wayne from Chicago. He wrote a book on pedophilia, the scandals, where he was shocked to discover how studying hundreds of cases, two things shocked him that we all know. First, the three things basically. First, how much more white these cases are than we think. Like did you read recently in Ireland, it was disclosed that only in Ireland we are talking about thousands, probably tens 
ten of thousands of cases. So that my friends told me from Dublin that now it's already, so I was told, maybe they exaggerate, already, you know, this usual advice of a mother when the, you send a small kid to the store, don't talk to strangers, no? Now they have, especially the stranger is a priest, no, don't. And I'm not making fun of the Irish here. I mean, in my country it's the same. And what, so the second thing. Sorry, just before you, actually, the fact seven in ten uh, pedophilia claims against priests in Ireland are wrong. Are, are wrong. wrong? Yeah, seven in ten. Are wrong. It's, it's a massive perpetuated fact. Really? Yes. Why? Um, it, it just hasn't happened. It just didn't happen. It's, uh, it, so many people are making these claims, uh, none of them, have, uh, seven out of ten, very few of them have actually been validated. And, and people have then gone back and said no, actually. Okay, no I must admit, so. I don't know this. Yeah. I'm not talking about Ireland. What I'm talking is that, for example, in no. my country, yeah. oh, yeah, no. there are many which are true, but nonetheless, what is so shocking, and this was tested at least in my country and in Poland, the shocking thing is how the church reacted in a totally protective way. For example, there was a case in Slovenia where a priest was caught raping serially small kids. Fa uh, the kids' parents were, were invited to visit a bishop who told them if they make this public they will commit a mortal sin and the priest was simply displaced to another church, where he did it again, displaced to... So this absolutely, this absolutely protective attitude. The third thing, Gary Willis is the name of the guy, this American Catholic writer. Gary Wills. Gary Wills, yeah, yeah, yeah. That he showed how uh, the way they do it to seduce children is, it's not simply that they do it in contrast with their religion. How they use all the religious, you know, they make it part of the religious ritual to do it. Now, what you said about fantasy and so on, I tend to agree generally with you. Generally in the sense that I know that it's fashionable in a politically correct way to claim generally about pedophilia or incest and so on, you know. Some people even claim they go to the end that like 70-80% of girls are really molested by their fathers and so on and so on. No, I, I don't buy that and I don't buy that as a good Freudian. I think that fantasy is here more fundamental. And of course the moment you say this, you say something horrible which is prohibited from the politically correct standpoint. You ask, you raise an extremely obscure, difficult question. The question of libidinal complicity of the victim. And this is prohibited. And my position here, I wonder to provoke you if you would agree, is a radical one. Let's say I, believe me, I'm not able to do it, but I like to be tasteless. And if I'm tasteless, I should be at least honest enough to be tasteless against myself. Let us say that I were to rape a woman. And let us say that my excuse were to be, but she really gave me signals she really wanted it. Now you have three ways to react to this. The first would be the vulgar male chauvinist. Oh, maybe there is a moment of truth, blah, blah, blah. No? Of course, we all reject this. I'm the first two. Then there is the second, usually feminist answer, which goes to say that this is not true, I projected it into the woman, and even if it is partially 
true. It is simply that the woman, the victim, was to such an extent the victim of patriarchal ideology that she uh, internalized this male, this, you know, this identification with the aggressor to be mistreated and so on and so on. I also, here, I draw the line, disagree with this. My position is a much more radical one. My position is a very simple and radical one. Why shouldn't women have the right to dream about being slightly brutally mistreated and so on? This gives you, as a man, absolutely no right to act on it. I claim, and I'm not bluffing here, I was reading some reports on rapes in ex-Yugoslavia and other rapes where, uh, let me make, I wrote about this and I tried to provoke you if you agree or not, and I spoke with some psychologists, I'm at least not totally bluffing here. Uh, 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 let's make a stupid, simplified, I know things are much more complex, mental experiment. Let's take two types of women. One more autonomous, aggressive one, the one more passive, secret, with secret dreams about being dominated by men. Let's say that they are both raped. You know what's the paradox? The, the paradox is the one whose fantasy is realized by the rape will be hurt much more than the other one. So it's not that it justifies, it makes it even worse. Because that's the ABC lesson of psychoanalysis. Your innermost fantasies are the, the most touchy and dangerous point of your life is if your innermost fantasies are brutally imposed onto you from the outside. It's not that, oh my God, I got what I want. This can be a nightmare, this can trigger a suicidal crisis and so on. So my point would have been that if you claim that it's not true that women have these passive masochistic fantasies and that if they have them, it's just that they internalize male, male ideology, you blame women too much. Apparently, it may appear that you try to save, redeem women. But imagine a woman who had these fantasies. First, you make her feel guilty, as if you know you are some kind of subordinate, dominated by male ideology. You, if you claim that woman in herself cannot have this fantasy, you are already, for me, way too close to, to blaming the victim, and so on and so on. I mean, I, my position would have been that uh, if a woman, and why shouldn't, can I, fuck it, fantasies are dirty things. You know, fantasies are not nice, correct thing. Fantasies are always, by definition, embarrassing, dirty, and so on. That's the basic lesson of psychoanalysis. Fantasy is not all oh, Bambi and so on. In fantasy, the Bambi screws you and you lick his testicles or whatever. Let's not go into it, no? So, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, so uh, again, there is nothing more humiliating than the innermost fantasy imposed on you. So, again, my solution is that, that uh, uh, in no way should the fact that you, me, me, no, me, I'm honest, as a rapist, that I saw that maybe the woman I want to rape entertains this fantasy. This in no way, not, not only does it not justify, it makes it even worse, if anything.
I'm here for even, I don't have any problems with, as you already know, with death penalty and so on and so on or whatever, no? So, uh, because uh, this is why, maybe you know it, but I will repeat it, this is why, this is how I account for the utter humiliation of the woman in that most terrifying and depressing scene from, you probably saw it, and if you saw the movie, you definitely remember it, from David Lynch's Wild at Heart. You remember when uh, Daniel Defoe harasses Laura Dern, say fuck me, say fuck me. He's not openly violent, just invading her private space. And desperate, but then out of despair, but also a little bit aroused, he finally says, fuck me, and you remember what he does then. He simply, he tricks it as a true authentic offer. He steps back and says, oh, thanks for the offer, but today... I, and in a way, of course, I'm not now downplaying real rape, but in a way one can say at the level of psychological humiliation, this is even more humiliating for her. Because in a way her fantasy is thrown aroused, thrown back at her, that's, so, you see, in this sense, I think we should not be afraid, we should cross this taboo, we should not be afraid to admit this ambiguous libidinal link of fantasies communicating when you, if you, when a woman is raped, this, how should I call it, fantasmatic participation, collaboration of the victim, but my point is that it absolutely does not justify it in any way. If anything, it makes it even worse. It makes it even worse. Because again, to return to my previously mentioned example, if let's say a woman who is autonomous and so on self-assertive is raped, I can imagine what she will do if hopefully there will not be a great physical harm. She will take a good shower and plan her revenge. <laughs> totally on her. But can you imagine the trauma of, you know, here things are much more complex. What, and even what is suicidal crisis? For example, reading reports on the survivors of rapes in Bosnia and so on, I noticed something which is a very nice Lacanian point, that uh, uh, the critical point of the victim of rape was usually not the rape itself. It was painful and so on, but there were usually not many suicides immediately after the rape. Because somehow you fix on, I have to survive to tell, the true critical point was then if you survived the rape, were set free, were joined, were succeeded joining your own people, and then there, that was the horrible point, because what made you, what gave you the strength to survive was, I must survive to tell the story. You were looking for a symbolic space, as it were, where your story would have been properly received. The true critical point occurred, so some doctors were telling me, when you are necessarily more or less traumatically disappointed, when you discover that there is no one to really receive your message. You know, people have sneering remarks, did you really not enjoy it secretly, blah, blah, blah. That was the point where usually then suicides occur. And maybe you know it, he has a wonderful, terrifying dream, Primo Levi, along 
a very weird dream along the same lines, where he reports on a dream. Don't show me the pornographic image. I hate the guy. There, on the cover. Yeah, like, hey, ask me. Okay, you are not old enough, but ask, let me ask you a frank question. You see that image there? Would you allow that guy to take your daughter to cinema? <laughs> the answer clear, never. Okay, sorry, let's go on. Uh, he reports on a very strange dream. How the dream is that he is set free, he survived, the dream in Auschwitz, he had this dream, that he is set free, he goes to visit his family, and that he is telling his family gathered around dinner about his horrible experience in Auschwitz, and then they start to yawn, they get bored, they go, and at that moment he awakens. It's a horrible logic. It's as if the disappointment in the dream is so horrible that you prefer to awaken to the, to the, to the reality of Auschwitz itself. And very honestly then, Primo Levi reports that he thought this dream is his peculiarity, but he discovered that Practically all others had this same had this same dream. Sorry, you wanted to before I got into this narcissistic exercise. I thought you wanted you you you. Me? No. The, the, now I will be evil evil in a stupid funny way. You, the protector of the Catholic Irish rapists. You. No, I know. My God, it's a bad taste joke. I know. No, 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 I thought, sorry, I thought you raised the hand before that you wanted, okay. So, you know what I propose? Now it's 20 to 12, let's take, let's say, let's say quarter of an hour break. No, sorry, let's say five minutes so that it will really be ten minutes. Sorry? That's a good question. Uh, oh my God. Uh, yes and no. Uh, to be very precise, Pinkard has some wonderful insights. For example, when he gets it that what Hegel calls absolute vision, absolute knowing, if you should totally forget this crazy idea that Hegel was an idiot who thought, I know everything, read the mind of God, that on the contrary, what Hegel calls absolute knowing is a certain closure. It's rather the admission of a certain radical limitation. What I, where I don't agree with Pinkard, are you talking about this in the spirit of Hegel or what that? No, no, I said he actually just came out with a translation. Ah, uh, yeah, uh, of, of new. Ah, I don't know that history. because my standard reference is of course that. Who did it that? Pinkard. Uh, no. Phenomenology. What does, first, how does, what's his title, spirit or mind? Uh, well, Bailey did the phenomenology of mind and then Miller came back with phenomenology of spirit. I'm for spirit, because I think that for Hegel, as everybody will tell you, spirit is a collective entity. Spirit is not what in Anglo-Saxon tradition is called mind. The whole point of Hegel is to put it simply that mind is always already spirit. That even your innermost uh, self-identity is already and so on and so on. What I like in Pinkard is his, I wouldn't say materialist, but his anti-theological reading of Hegel. But I violently disagree with his point that Hegel was a kind of a pantheistic, you know, spirit. No, 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 I think that Hegel was a Christian, but Hegel's point was that Christianity itself is the theological form of atheism. That Hegel's reading was that 
God who dies really dies. Like, you know, how to put it? But okay, I did this in my so-called theological writings that what happened on the cross? It's not simply God is up there, he sends a messenger and okay, things go bad, the son dies, so the son returns to the father and maybe next time. <laughs> that, uh, for Hegel, what dies on the cross is not is God of beyond itself. It's, it's literally. What dies on the cross is the very transcendent God, God the Father who secretly pulls the strings, guarantees the happy outcome. So for Hegel, Holy Spirit is simply the, the collectivity of believers without any big other guaranteeing anything. And you can make here wonderful connections with radical theologists who claim that even if they are not leftists, conservative, like Claudel had something wonderful, said something wonderful when he said that uh, the deepest message of Christianity is not trust God, is God has to trust us. The message of crucifixion for these radical Christians is not God will redeem us, is God abdicates. It's up to you, humanity. Like God has to. We should God, or as Claudel put it, God cannot do anything without us. Okay, but all that stuff, so again, here, but you know who is, okay, to cut a long story short, my favorite American Hegelian, although he is politically, maybe, so, so it's the one I mentioned yesterday, is Robert Pippin, nonetheless. Although I don't like his anti-ontological reading of Hegel, you know, this modest reading of Hegel, like no metaphysics, just kind of a general discourse theory, but okay, we will do this. Okay, uh, do I know? What is this? This is B. B. Yeah. Katie B. Yeah, but between B and Katie, no dog. Yeah. And Con is like a Jewish, like this. Yeah. <laughs> we are all anti Semitic, sorry. <laughs> okay, I got it. So, Hegel, Hegel quotes, no? Okay, okay? Definitely. Okay, okay, so we will do more Hegel, definitely, and we try to do some cognitivism and so on with pleasure. Okay, uh, now since I would, um, let's, uh, ah, okay, I will skip that stuff because I think you even maybe find it somewhere on the internet, uh, so I don't want to repeat myself too much, this stuff of, uh, that I mentioned yesterday, Karadzic and so on. No, what fascinated me, it's only, okay, if you know it, I will read to you. This is a poem by Karadzic, Radovan Karadzic, Hague, Bosnia. Official translation, by official, I mean, I didn't do it, I don't know if it's official. Convert to my faith, to my new faith crowd. I offer you what no one has had before. I offer you inclemency and wine. The one who won't have bread will be fed by the light of my son. People, nothing is forbidden in my faith. There is loving and drinking and looking at the sun as long as you want. And this Godhead forbids you nothing. Oh, obey my call, brethren, people, crowd, and so on and so on. I think he formulated here quite a correct insight into how, let's call it, nationals, nationalist or religious fundamentalism works. It's again the story of what I was saying before about this false permissivity. Namely, I will repeat an old point from my books, but it's crucial to uh, repeat it. Uh, you know, usually, how is usually this 
fundamentalism re-emerging today explained. The, the usual sociological doxa is that we are approaching a society of risk, of uncertainty, people do not feel safe, so to avoid this existential uncertainty, choices you have to make and so on, we take recourse to old traditional edifices, old ethical edifices or national identity which provide some kind of security in this confused world and so on. I claim that this is maybe a partial truth, but more fundamentally it's the exact opposite which is true. That uh, the way I spoke with some fundamentalists in Croatia and Serbia and Bosnia, and interesting enough, when I spoke with them, like even in Slovenia also, privately more, they told me practically the opposite story. They told me that the way they experience modern society is as an over-regulated one. They told me, my God, everything is prohibited today. Officially it's hedonism, but you cannot beat a woman. It's politically incorrect. You cannot eat fat. It's not good. You cannot steal. You cannot swear. It's, uh, you, cannot, uh, you cannot hurt, humiliate others, and so on. So, for them, becoming a nationalist or religious fundamentalist is precisely a way to gain a new space of permissivity. It's proclaim yourself a nationalist and you can rape, kill, and so on, and so on. You are delivered from freed from all this uh, political correctness and so on and so on. So here, but don't misunderstand me, the same goes for everyone. I'm not in any way anti-Serb. But here I want to quote you what I quote already in my books. It's a wonderful passage. A quote from a Serb journalist, Alexander Pianic, who described how Milosevic functioned when he was in power in Serbia. Quote, Milosevic generally switched the Serbs. In the time of his rule, Serbs abolished the time for working. No one does anything. He allowed the flourishing of the black market and smuggling. You can appear on the state TV and insult Blair, Clinton, or anyone else of the world dignitaries. Furthermore, Milosevic gave us the right to carry weapons. He gave us the right to solve all our problems with weapons. He gave us also the right to drive stolen cars. Milosevic changed the daily life of Serbs into one great holiday and enabled us all to feel like high school pupils on a graduation trip, which means that nothing, but really nothing, of what you do can be punishable. Of course, this is a rhetorical exaggeration and so on, but there is a deep element of truth in it. You, when you have an authoritarian, fundamentalist edifice, it is officially founded on prohibitions, like Hitler's address to Germans, enough of the Weimar decadence, sacrifice yourself for the country. This is the surface. You should always look beneath it for a hidden human. The true message is always pretend to sacrifice, but then you may rape, kill, whatever, whatever, whatever you want. Uh, uh, in other words, to go further, uh, and to make my old point here. You remember this old saying by Dostoevsky, uh, if God doesn't exist, then everything is permitted. I claim if there is a lesson to be learned from 20th century fundamentalism is that the exact opposite is the truth. First, as Lacan puts it, as every contemporary neurotic will tell you, 
if God doesn't exist, that is to say, when you live in a permissive capitalist society, on the contrary, everything is prohibited. I mean, take a walk in, a, in San Francisco, Castro Street, or whatever, in a permissive gay society, everything is permitted, they're obsessed with their health, politically correct rules, and so on and so on. On the other hand, if, if God exists, then usually, if God does exist, everything is permitted. That's the lesson of so-called fundamentalists. If God exists, and you, if you can claim that you act on behalf of God, then uh, uh, who can? Who can do it? Here, I, although I wrote a lot about the emancipatory dimension of Christianity, here I tend to agree with that uh, physicist, quantum physics, Stephen Weinreich, who made a wonderful statement. You know, usually it is said that, at least even if it's not true, usually it's said that religion can make some bad people at least do good things. He claims the opposite. He claims that if you, without religion, well, good people do good things, bad people do bad things. But you need religion to make good people do bad things. <laughs> no, as a sacrifice for the higher cause and so on and so on. Uh, okay. <coughs> That's not all that we can say about religion. What I'm, what I'm only telling you is that it's very simple. The thing is that nonetheless, spontaneously, there is a truth in it, spontaneously we find it, of course, most of us at least, if we are not pathological, we find it difficult to kill, to torture. I mean, I don't know how you are. I may imagine to kill someone easily, as I told you yesterday, but the idea of torturing someone helpless, I I think that not only I wouldn't be able to do it myself, I even cannot imagine how would you react if you were forced to see some, how are they called, snuff movie where somebody is really tortured in front of the camera to death. I mean, even to be a witness of this. I, so the problem is how to make people do it. And here, so-called fundamentalisms or at a different level, so-called uh, totalitarianisms, found a wonderful mechanism, which is to take into account your resistance to do it, but then to stage, to make you perceive this resistance, like you find it disgusting to kill someone, torture, as your weakness, and to make you experience your overcoming of this resistance as a true heroic sacrifice. For example, the classical formulation of this operation, you find it in one of the really bad guys, Heinrich Himmler. You know his famous speech in the early 43 when they were preparing Holocaust in Poznan, Poznan in Poland to, to SS officers, where he approached directly this problem. No? And his problem was he said it openly, Nazi office, SS officers will have to do many horrible things, like killing women, children. And then he produced the formula where he said, every, okay, every, majority of ordinary people can do a good thing for their country. It takes a truly great patriot to do a bad thing for your country. That a true Greatness is uh, that any idiot can sacrifice even his life or her for his country. It takes a true love for your country to be able to kill, to torture for your country. That is to say, to crush even your 
elementary not moral sentiment. The trick is to present your, as it were, spontaneous ethical attitude as part of your narcissistic identity and claiming what right do you have when country needs it to, to, to stick to these rules and so on and so on. So it's a very, it's a very tricky mechanism which is at work here. But okay, let's leave this stuff, you can read about it and so on. What I would like to do now is to make a step further to conclude for today. First, uh, I would like to mention the last film, maybe you've heard about it, I talk about it, just which is the film which is, I think, a perfect example of this split I'm talking about, the split, the gap between explicit and implicit ideological message. It's John Carpenter's, yeah, yeah, the one of uh, Halloween and so on. He's an interesting example of Hollywood left. He really is a leftist. You know how I discovered? Do you know his movie? It's difficult to get. It was a failure, but I love it, although it's a little bit boring. They Live yeah. from 88. This pure leftist paranoia of, you know, we are controlled by foreigners, but in the middle of the film, okay, one third into the film, you have a wonderful, totally naive scene where this, the hero of the film, an unemployed guy uh, in, living in LA, an employed worker called uh, John Nada, very nice, proletarian touch, Nada is Spanish for nothing, you know, proletarian, have nothing but your chains, blah, blah, takes a walk, enters an abandoned church and finds strange uh, dark glasses. And then, this is critique of ideology at its most naive. When you put the glasses on, you see the real message, as it were. For example, you have the big uh, billboard publicity, go to Hawaii, have a life uh, pleasure, a holiday of your lifetime. But when you put the glasses on, you see just uh, uh, obey, enjoy, reproduce, don't think, or whatever. And okay, it goes all like this. It goes all like this. Uh, this may sound naive, but and stupid, but uh, uh, primitive. Of course, it is naive because the whole point is that we don't need glasses. This secret message is already in the medium itself. But I found some interesting things to comment upon here, where the movie is right. First, I like the way this scene is staged, because the usual naive metaphor would have been the opposite one, that in our daily lives we have on ideological glasses which falsify, so that, you know, the usual model of enlightenment would have been learn to put the glasses down, see it with your eyes as it is. I like this idea that naturally we are in ideology. You need glasses. You need you have to be forced to see the truth. The truth hurts. Which is why, if you see the movie, there is a mysterious scene which is crucial to the movie. Remember, half into the movie, the hero tries to convince his black friend to put on the... And the friend resists, and they have a friendly fight going on for over ten minutes. That's like, you have to be for... I think this fight with this have almost, has almost the same function as that in Fight Club beating himself. I mean, truth hurts. You have to be forced to accept the truth. The other thing I like is how this 
mechanism of seeing the true message, as it were. The way it is done in this film is only one of the options. The way it is done in this film is the standard consumerist society option, where you are explicitly addressed by the hedonist message, enjoy, blah, 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 but what is invisible, what is delivered between the lines, what you see when you put your glasses on, is the true ideological injunction. Obey, consume, don't think, whatever. Of course, there is the other, maybe still more predominant procedure, which is the opposite one. For example, to return to my old example of Ku Klux Klan, you, let's say we are in, again, American South of the United States, early 20s, and you see uh, some fundamentalist Ku Klux Klan propaganda, like uh, uh, Christian, fight for Christian civilization, for our values. That's the explicit message. Then, let's say you were to put these glasses on, and by putting the glasses on, you would have seen the true message, which would have been something like, join us, we can link some blacks, we can have some fun, or whatever. The obscene pleasure is not what is directly offered to you. It's what is offered to you as the secret, secret bribery. So uh, uh, that's the first thing to say, how uh, we have two opposite uh, mechanisms. And uh, I think that it's at this level that we should detect ideology today. Whenever you see a message, even the most innocent message, you should always ask this slightly. Yes, do you know? Yeah, no, I just want to, this critique of ideology, I'm just, I'm a shit, we're talking these two levels. Ultimately, I'm struck by, I know it's kind of the English translation of what Kant is trying to argue, that what, what must be the case in order for what we know to be the case to actually be so? And this, this kind of epistemic uh, yeah. But is it all, uh, this condition of ideology, is this an inversion, or, or not an inversion, but a, a paraphrase? What, what must be the case in order for what we know to be the case to not actually be so? You can, yeah, you can put it this way, although I don't see here the parallel with Kant that I would have seen is Kant effectively was the first to to formulate this, this idea of a structurally necessary illusion. Yes, yes. This idea, you know, when Kant speaks about transcendental illusion, it's not simply a question of a mistake that can be corrected. It's a kind of a structurally necessary... There, but what... No, this is ultimately the shift, the kind of like, I mean, we put kind of Marx after Kant. Uh, mm. um, the shift from epistemology to ideology for making sense of the world. Yeah, yeah. Although, again, I don't want to repeat too much myself because about this I was already writing five, four, four or five times in my books. What I find so fascinating in Marx is his idea that for him ideology is not simply a misperception of reality. It's inscribed into reality itself. For Marx, Ideology is an illusion which we follow in what we do. It's not, you know, ideology for Marx is not, at its most elementary, it's not. This is what you are really doing, but this is how you live in illusions, how you misperceive it. No, ideology is in what you are doing. 
And this is, for example, I'm, I've written so much about it, but I think this is the crucial point when, when, where Marx is still actual. This is the whole theory of commodity fetishism in Marx. Marx is not saying in reality commodity is just a social product, but we think fetishistically that it's some magical object. No, we, Marx was well aware that we all know that a commodity or money is nothing magical. We treat it in our social exchange, in our social practice as a magical object. So, as I developed in some of my books, uh, things get complicated here, in the sense that you don't only have reality and illusion. You have reality and illusion, and you have an illusion which is constitutive of reality itself. So that the ultimate, or as, as Daniel Dennett, I quote him here, but he means this as a negative point. You have to distinguish between how things appear to you and how things really appear to you. <laughs> you are not aware of how things really appear to you. So here you can establish some kind of a uh, link, with, link with Kant and so on, but this is a very complex topic, but we can go. I'm afraid to enter it now because all this topic of Kant, Hegel and so on, it gets very... It gets very complex. Okay, let me just allow me just to finish this line of putting, as it were, putting the glasses on. Uh, for example, let's imagine you see a pu simple publicity for how's it called for uh, for for uh, helping some starving kids in, uh, in 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 Africa. You know all these disgusting manipulations. TV clip on TV or newspaper, you see usually some disfigured black kid and then the messages for the price of uh, one coffee or whatever, you can make a difference, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I think that the ideology here is that basically the message is people are suffering out there, but you don't have really to do anything serious just contribute a little bit of money and we absolve you, you can forget about it, you can go on and so on and so on. So the first message is to, to give you an easy way out. The second, even more dangerous message is depoliticization, which is why I think charity is so fashionable today. The message of charity is always, let's depoliticize it. Like, you know, all the big guys of charity, like, uh, 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 from Bill Gates downwards, they all repeat the same mantra. My God, people are suffering in Africa. Millions are dying unnecessarily. So let's forget this old ideological problem, socialism. Uh, who, uh, who cares about that? Let's all get together, private capital, state, and so on, and let, uh, uh, charity organization. Let's do something. The message here is a clear one. It's, let's do something so that we don't think about it. Do, don't think. Which is why I think... Today, ideology no longer functions in this simple way of mystification, where then you can critically say, oh, we live in our consumerist society, are we aware that out there people are starving, dying of diseases which could have been easily cured? No, the ruling ideology all the time reminds us of, reminds us of that. That's how it functions today. They all, the time, they all the time sustain this emergency state to prevent us to make you feel, gui feel guilty. My God, it's an emergency state. Let's do... Sorry. 
And have you seen any of these charities as well that are actually just turning into businesses? Like the likes of, uh, I don't know, Concern, where they're giving out micro-loans, you know, to... to, to uh, yeah, 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 of course, yeah. So ultimately, businesses that are charities as, as kind of a rejection of what ultimately charity is. And then, yeah, that's really the, a, 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 a big shift, because charity, ultimately, this giving and, and getting nothing back, but ingraining charity now into an economic system. Yeah, yeah, that's crucial what you said, now. yeah. I spoke with some economists, and they explained this to me. Uh, I claim that today charity is no longer the way it was still 20, 30 years ago, a kind of a personal idiosyncrasy. It's really an, a necessary part of the reproduction of the system itself. It, something changed in charity, in the way. But uh, what I want to do is now to conclude with some kind of a more uh, general, as it were, reflection about this famous after 68, this so-called new stage of postmodern digital, however we call it, capitalism, although I'm suspicious about these terms, postmodern capitalism, but I think something did happen after 68. My reference here is, maybe you heard about the book, it's a thick book which nobody read, Luc Boltanski F. Capello, The New Spirit of Capitalism. It's a kind of, a, again, six, 700 pages book, which is a kind of a classic that nobody reads, but there's nothing strange about it. As we all know, uh, uh, there are big classic. I claim that even a new genre is emerging today. Big classical books that everyone quotes, and they are classics reprinted all the time, but people don't read them. For example, uh, uh, John Rawls' Theory of Justice. I know people who wrote a book on Rawls. And they admitted to me they didn't really read all of it. Only if you know philosophy, that Pittsburgh Hegelian, Michael Brandon making it explicit. Habermas, uh, uh, Theory of uh, Communicative Justice, 1,000 pages. These are classics. They are interpreted widely. Von Mises, uh, Human Action. Ah, really? I didn't. I know that Sloterdijk is also with his spheres, three volumes, each 1,000 pages and so on. Okay, this is one of them. But uh, it has a nice thesis that after 68, a new kind of capitalism emerged, the so-called cultural, compassionate capitalism, which triumphantly reintegrated the basic protest message of 68, which was, you know, against alienation, consumation, and so on and so on. And so the best way to detect this shift, I think, is, again, by way of detecting, isolating, it's, of course, it's not 100%, but there is a shift in the predominant form of publicity, I claim. Let's say that 20, 30 years ago, the predominant mode of publicity was one of the two elementary ones to use the Lacanian triad, either real or symbolic. Now we are moving towards imaginary. Real in the naive sense. First, it was real in the sense of when you make publicity for a product, you focus on so-called real properties of the product. Now, like you are trying to sell, I don't know, a Land Rover, you emphasize how much... Uh, gasoline fuel expense, that it really can climb mountains, you can cross a river with it. You refer, even if they are false, it doesn't matter. You refer to real properties. Then you have the symbolic level, so-called status theory. They play on how 
having this kind of a car will determine, elevate whatever your social status. You will be looked upon giving you a certain image and so on and so on. Uh, but I claim none of the two really works today. Reading some of the stuff and I always like to, uh, to watch carefully uh, publicities, I noticed a new a new level which is neither the real quality of the object nor the symbolic status, all the Torsten Veblen stuff about uh, status user, but uh, the experience. It addresses directly the experience this object will be given. For example, for Land Rover, the publicity today predominant would not be so much gasoline, blah, blah, such uh, power. Uh, also not, oh, you signal to your peers that you are a strong man, blah, 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 whatever, but something like, do you feel alienated in a big city? Do you feel isolated? Drive our Land Rover and you will feel as if you are having an authentic full life in the countryside. You know, it will refer to the experience that consuming this product provides you. And I will try to give you here the ultimate example, which is why I hate it. Recently, I entered a Starbucks place and I read an ad. They had there, it was almost also there in the media, an ad campaign. It begins already with, it's not just what you are buying, it's what you are buying into. So here is the paragraph. This is, I think, ideology today. I quote, when you buy Starbucks, whether you realize it or not, you are buying, buying into something bigger than a cup of coffee. You are buying into a coffee ethic. Through our Starbucks Shared Planet program, we purchase more fair trade coffee than any company in the world, ensuring that the farmers who grow the beans receive a fair price for their hard work and we invest in and improve coffee-growing practices and communities around the globe. It's good coffee karma. And a little bit of a price of a cup of Starbucks coffee helps furnish the place with comfortable chairs, good music, and the right atmosphere to dream, work, and check in. We all need places like that these days. When you choose Starbucks, you are buying a cup of coffee from a company that cares and so on and so on. So again, what they are saying, sorry. Um, I would just propose that this is actually a fourth level and that the experience is actually something that's been in place for since the mid-90s, the predominant. Ah, where do you see the fourth level? Yeah. And this epic thing is a relatively new phenomenon. So ah, that would be nice. So to distinguish between would, would simple reference, the, yeah, the, because the again, yeah. Very valid. Uh, yeah. No, because again, what interests me is that, uh, did you notice what they squeeze into it? First, they promise you, they, and I read years ago on Larry King, so not read, I listened to an interview with the guy who owns uh, Starbucks, and he directly spelled it out. He said, I know after economics, all these small community spaces, small towns are disappearing. He was fully conscious that he's really offering an ersatz community space, where you can meet friends, chat, all this pseudo-personalization, you know, that the Starbucks guys had to try to remember you if you are a permanent customer, uh, smile, all that stuff. Then, 
all the crises we have today, like lack of water, uh, uh, third world suffering, they, they make you feel that you participate in that project. Ecology, they make you feel... So again, it's not just a cup of coffee. You participate in all this big... You do something, as they put it. On the top of this, on the top of this, uh, uh, I claim that uh, it's not only Starbucks, it's even, it's even when the cost does not seem to be so commercialized. For example, this will be an evil example, many friends hate me for mentioning it, but for example, uh, do you, uh, for example, let's be frank, when you go to a store and buy organic food, organic apples, I claim that most of us are too cynical, we don't really believe, at least I'm skeptical, that okay, maybe they are, maybe not, really better. You know, sometimes I have this suspicion that first they select the nice apples, they sell them, then the rotten ones, they sell them for the double price. Okay, it may be true or not, what I'm saying is that I don't think you are really afraid of being poisoned, but it makes you feel good, you see, even in my everyday shopping, I do something, I participate, doing something for the earth. You know, this making you feel nice, an ethical, social, aware contribution, and so on, and so on, and so on. And this is, I think, ideology of, and I tend to agree with you spontaneously, that this, maybe this is already an additional level, yes, because it's not just your individual feel-good experience or what. It's kind of a collective collective awareness stuff, and so on, and so on, no? Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, what I'm saying is that it's interesting how, I don't have now time to go into it, I want some other things to say, but how uh, all the topics, the main topics of the 68 protest against the alienated consumerist society, and so on, how the system integrated it, you know, no longer this for this chain uh, division of labor, but creative interaction, and so on, and so on, and so on. It's, uh, again, what interests me is how this so-called new spirit of capitalism triumphantly recuperated the egalitarian, anti-hierarchical rhetoric of the 68, presenting itself as a successful libertarian revolt against the oppressive social organizations of corporate capitalism or state or state socialism. I think this is again one of the greatest triumphs maybe of the uh, of the of uh, one of the greatest ideological triumphs and literally everything can be recuperated. For example, okay, let's take Che Guevara. It's not only the t-shirts that you get, but uh, <laughs> I learned recently that an Australian company put on the market, you know, you have this uh, cherry, whatever, cherry Garcia, they put cherry Guevara ice cream. And this is how they promote the eating experience. Uh, the revolutionary struggle of the cherries was squashed as they were trapped between the two layers of chocolate. Ma made their memory live in your mouth and so on and so on. 
anything goes. Okay, we can make... First, I'm not saying that 68 was simple. I'm not this kind of a old Marxist paranoiac who claims everything was recuperated and so on. No, 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 it's not as simple as that. Uh, uh, what I'm... Uh, uh, what I'm... First, the first thing to admit it is that, nonetheless, 68 did succeed in many important things. My God, our new sensitivity towards racism, towards anti-feminism and so on. My God, even in the common field, many things are simply impossible now, which were still possible, like cheap, direct anti-feminism, racism and so on. So there are real achievements uh, today. This was the best critique of Sarkozy that I read in France, you know, that Sarkozy made in one of his electoral speeches before he was elected president. Sarkozy said that his main task is to get rid France of the memory of 68, of all that leftist decadence. But then as some people immediately know that, is Sarkozy aware that he is possible only after 68? A crazy, non-dignified guy like him marrying Carla Bruni and so on and so on. Only after 68 can such a guy be elected president and so on and so on. So, I, so again, I'm not saying all of it. I'm just saying that... Uh, that uh, uh, I'm just saying that uh, what happened after 68 is that this new, let's call it... Um, postmodern, pernicious capitalism successfully recuperated at two levels the demand of 68, this fight against alienation and especially this struggle for subjective authenticity. You know how everything can and should be perceived as on the path of your subjective, authentic existence, and so on and so on. Again, even at the most elementary level of ideology, I don't think our predominant ideological interpolation today, by interpolation I mean in this simple Althusserian sense, what does, how does society address you, the social superego, what are you expected to be? I think today it's no longer some direct big ideological cause, fight, democracy, patriot. It's some kind of a vaguely spiritualized 